0: The Rural Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Larson. Today we're with David Hernandez and Teresa Surratt of Camp Wandawega in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. A camp with a very storied past and an almost unbelievable history that includes the mob, a madam, and the Vatican. David and Teresa have transformed the property from a dilapidated campsite into what has now been listed as one of the top 100 hotels in the world. Throughout this adventure, they have found themselves right ahead of the latest trends, or maybe even setting them, making the camp a creative playground and landing them in the center of some epic brand collaborations and product lines. And a little side note, as you know, we typically do all our interviews in person, but due to a number of factors, we were not able to record this one in person. So while we had to compromise a little bit on the audio, the content is so good that I really don't think you'll mind. So here we go with David and Teresa. All right. Well, we're here today with David Hernandez and Teresa Surratt from Camp Wandawega in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. Guys, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us.
1: Happy to be here.
0: Well, let's start from the beginning and have us tell you a little bit about your backgrounds and how you grew up.
1: You wanna start, Teresa? <laughs> Ladies first. Yeah,
0: would you like the one hour version or
2: the or the thirty second version? <laughs> um I'll I'll start with it with the sort of the one minute version. I I grew up in a little farm town in southern Illinois, it's called Beardstown, like the beard would be. And um gosh, I had four thousand people, but I grew up about eight miles outside of town and uh, between soybeans and corn and a hog lot. And so um went to college when I was uh, 17, actually, and wanted to be a graphic designer. I just wanted to do creative things after spending my whole sort of childhood and high school years painting, you know, grocery store windows and bug shields and everything you do in a small town if you're an artist to make money. Um went to school at SIU and then and then studied graphic design and then moved to um, Chicago after a couple false starts and strange jobs. And then um, from Chicago, uh, went straight into advertising. And then advertising is where I feel like um, I learned um, from so many people who'd been doing it for so long how to really build a brand and tell a story. And that's where I met David. And so David and I have actually worked together for, oh my Lord, David, what, 15 years,
1: right? Yeah, probably longer. On and off. I mean, obviously through Camp Wandawiga, you know, we work together on the side, obviously, but we work together on and off during our day jobs as well.
2: So yeah, um we uh, we've we've been here together um at camp, obviously working as partners and partners in marriage and partners in and in, in being parents. Um and then at the agency life it's it's actually good sometimes because we can commute in together. So I, I, I skipped through about 45 <laughs> years there, but uh, that's a nutshell.
1: I was kind of the uh, the opposite of Teresa. So she was like a total country kid. I was a total city kid. I grew up in the city of Chicago on the north side in Albany Park and Ravenswood, that neck of the woods. And so for me, though, um, uh, Camp Wanda Wiga was kind of... A weekend getaway it was a place that i've been going to you know my whole life when it was owned by the catholic church so it was kind of a great little way to escape the city and kind of be able to run around in the woods and you know go swimming in the lake and fishing and do all the amazing things that you could do out in the country and i mean for me it's like sometimes i literally think of uh you know wisconsin as a lifesaver in terms of getting out of the city as opposed to all the stupid stuff i would have done if i stayed in chicago <laughs> as a kid so.
0: Definitely. So, did you have any idea that maybe this would be a bigger part of your future and have any dreams of owning that someday? Or was that just a completely separate thing?
1: I think, you know, it's, I don't think it's the sort of thing when you're a little kid that you, you could ever even comprehend that you could own yeah. something, you know, especially something like something like this, something that meant so much to me and meant so much to so many people. It's like the sort of thing that you don't really think about anyone ever owning because it's owned so collectively. So it wasn't even something that we really fantasized about. I and mean, I, I do think maybe we thought about, like, maybe we can build a whole bunch of cabins and me and all my and friends, you know, my cousins who all used to come here, we could all have our own little cabin or whatever. But you know, I think those dreams kind of faded away as we kind of grew up and went our separate ways. Um, but you know ultimately, you know Teresa and I started visiting a camp when it was still owned by the Catholic Church in the early 2000s, and um, Father Beginskis, who was the main caretaker still, um, I told him, "Hey, if you're ever going to sell the place, um, let me know before you do." And a couple of years later, um 2003, he called. He said, "Okay, if you're serious, it's time." and um, we bought it in around January of 2004. And again, it's funny though, we're talking about like dreaming about owning it. We still kind of, we're humbled by the fact that we are just like one tiny little chapter in the history of the place. And we know that, you know, we're not really the owners, we're just the current stewards or the current caretakers. So we're just trying to do our job of, you know, making the most of it so that future generations can enjoy it like we do.
0: I love that. Talk a little bit about the past because it does have a very storied past,
1: yeah, the the past of the place is really amazing. It's funny, too, getting back to my childhood. When we were little kids here hanging out when it was run by the Catholic Church. We had all these childhood fantasies that we had made up about Al Capone and secret passageways and trying to find Capone's money and all kinds of silly little stories. And I don't think, um, you know, again, that, that was really just kind of our childhood imaginations running wild. And um, it never, ever occurred to us that the real history could be so much more um, adventurous and romantic and seedy than, than what we had made up. So it turns out that the place, you know, around 1925, when it started, um, it was basically, you know, probably bought by the mob and run by the madam. And she ran it as, as kind of a lodge hotel, speakeasy, brothel, all rolled into one. You know, so I think if you could imagine this place, you know, opening up in the midst of uh prohibition, it was an amazing little place to be on the end of a dead end road, on the edge of a lake that no one had ever heard of, on the edge of the woods. It was a perfect little getaway. And if you were to draw, draw a triangle from Chicago to Milwaukee to Madison, it's right in that triangle. So it's you know, relatively close to three major markets. So it was kind of an amazing little getaway during the Prohibition era. And then I think um, when the stock market crashed in 1929, I think they have legitimate plans for it to be more of like a proper – you know, saloon, hotel, restaurant, whatever. But um, I think with the economy going south at that point, um, everything changed. And I think that's when they really kind of leaned into becoming a brothel. You had all these um, first-generation women who had come from Europe who found themselves in America looking for great opportunities, better opportunities, jobs, et cetera. And they found themselves here in the midst of the Great Depression. And unfortunately, sadly, you know, many of them had to turn to prostitution as a mode of survival, So anyway, the the madam ran the place. um, Even after prohibition, she continued to sell illegal liquor and she continued to run it as a brothel. And she did that all the way until 1942 when she was finally arrested for running a body house of ill fame. But before that, there was a whole series of things from criminals on the run, contempt of court, uh, multiple federal raids, prohibition padlocks, um, kidnapping, murder, suicide, et cetera. So there's like a really kind of interesting history Um, from the beginning until 1942. And then it became a legitimate lake resort in the 1950s. And then the Catholic Church bought it around 1961, and they owned it until about 2004 when we bought it. So, you know, kind of like from the mob to the madam to a legitimate lake resort to being, you know, purchased by the Vatican to be a getaway for um, Latvian priests who had fled Latvia during the war, and they couldn't go back because it was part of the Soviet Union. So that was how I came to know the place. It's because I'm, uh, my mom is a Latvian Catholic. She's a refugee. And this was a place where the Latvian side of my family could kind of come together outside of the city and, you know, sing Latvian folk songs and drink Latvian liqueur and, you know, dance and sing around the bonfire. So it was kind of like a way for them to return home, um, even though they couldn't return home because of the Soviet Union.
0: Wow, that's incredible. So describe the camp for us. What was it like when you took it over? What kind of shape was it in?
2: That's one of my favorite questions. It was we kind of describe it as Blair Witch. Um, (laughs) I remember when David first took me here, and it was oh my lord, we'd only been dating for maybe a year, and we'd trailer and motorcycles up here, and we just wanted to sort of ride the Wisconsin countryside. And he'd been talking for all these years, really fondly, about this place that he went to his whole childhood. And uh, you know, we were in our in our twenties, and um, he brought me up here, and I had this idyllic vision in my head of What he'd been describing, and it was nothing like that. It really was like a hoarder's den in many rooms, (laughs) like roofs falling in and windows missing, and truly scary stuff. Um, Like the, I remember the whole field was just full of broken down cars, like twenty five broken down on blocks cars, and then just a mountain of used tires. It really did look like a junkyard, and the parts didn't look like a junkyard it just looked like this is where you would take someone to, you know, I don't know if if you were going to kidnap someone. Like it looked like bad things happened here. Um, so it was really scary, and and we stayed a couple times, and Father and let us rent a room, and of course we just had to got this room to make a inhabitable spend the night. And we never, at that point, never imagined, because he didn't tell me at that stage that he was thinking about someday buying it, or he he didn't even mention at that point that he even dreamed ever as a child of buying it. And so it, it was pretty scary. The before pictures are something that we just started to share on Instagram here in this last year, because all these years... I was thinking, wow! If anybody really saw what this place was underneath when we got it, it would be too scary to ever come back, <laughs> or they would only be able to walk in the rooms and be like, "Holy God, what it what it was before we sort of put it back together." So, David, we've been together for for a while, um, and, and and coming here on occasion. And um, not really even seeing the whole property. then when David says, well, you know, Father Biscis called and he mentioned it and I'm like, oh, cool. What are they going to do with it? And he's like, well, I was thinking about buying it. And I was like, what? Because, (laughs) you know, what do you do with the 25 acre condemned property? And it wasn't just that it was condemned. It was full of these rooms packed to this. Dealing with like junk. It was such an overwhelming terrifying money pit like with a capital M. Um I couldn't take it seriously but then he waited a week cuz I was just like I'm not even going to consider this. You're this is nuts. And then about a week later he brought it up again and then he kept bringing it up very diligently. And then finally I just, you know, he sort of wore me down. I'm like, "Okay, I mean, I I had done it before. You know, I I bought my first sort of condemned house when I was 21, just graduated college. So, it wasn't like a new thing to tackle, um, but this was different because it was gigantic. And then he and I had no plan for it. We just wanted to save it. So
1: and we were we were engaged at the time. I, we ended up closing on it. I think like, you know, December, January, 2003 and, or you know, January, 2004. And we got married in August of 2004. So we basically had eight months to get the place just, just barely good enough to be able to have 250 of our closest friends and relatives come for our wedding so we had a ton of work to do in the early days and we we literally were grabbing friends every single weekend from Chicago and we promised them we'd fill them up with booze and chili if they would (laughs) just come help us work all weekend so we had like these week after week after week of work parties of just cleaning and gutting and painting and throwing things away and donating things and finding amazing things in, in the process that obviously were worth saving I think that was one of the great things about it is the property in general. Like Teresa mentioned it was obviously really run down, but it had never truly been molested. It had never been renovated. You know, so all the windows, all the furniture, all the doors, all the fixtures, all the sinks, everything was still original, going back to the 20s, 30s, and 40s. You know, the place was originally built in the 20s, but they had added on more cabins and more you know expansions and stuff into the into the 30s and 40s. And it was almost as if nothing had ever been thrown away. So we had to peel away all the stuff that was, you know, kind of piled into the place in the 80s and 90s and beyond that just didn't belong here, and save all the stuff that mattered and kind of put it all back together again, like just barely in time for our wedding.
2: And but the the truth is, we locked almost all the doors, so no one stayed here, no one spent the night here, um, except for David and I in the one in the one room that we had fixed up enough. And we just pitched a huge tent out in the field and everyone did like any outdoor wedding, you spend your time out there. And so, um, it was, uh, fast and nerve wracking and exhilarating. If you can imagine planning for a wedding, planning for a wedding for 250 in the middle of nowhere, essentially where we were, it wasn't a wedding facility. So every single thing that you need every chair, every every porta potty. Um, everything was like throwing a a party in in the woods. So we did all that, but at the same time, it was compounded with a deadline that was closer to seven months. We're working full time in Chicago. This is another state, and we're just trying to get the property, you know, up to at least tolerable. And so, I remember the morning of the wedding. It was six o'clock in the morning, and I was out there with. Two bags of mulch on my shoulders, just mulching as much oh as I could <laughs> around these little moments. So I'm like, it's a ported body, but it's really cute. Cause look, it's got fresh mulch. That's um, it it was crazy, but it was a, I think it was an interesting way to start out because it really set a precedence for. A degree of commitment that we would have to have and continue at that pace for the next 15 years to where we are now to be able to get it to where it is. So even though it's not the mad rush for the wedding, we've never sort of taken our foot off the accelerator since. But just the different projects, and of course, with a property that's almost 100 years old, it's it's never ending, you know. And, and nothing's ever going to be cheap or fast or easy. Um, so whether you need one year's all new roofs in the buildings, or you're running underwater plumbing another year, or replacing all the electrical in another year, it's an adventure. It's expensive, um, but it has been truly a labor of love. And it's, it's been a good anecdote for what we have to do in the city um, and our jobs, which is really the polar opposite. So it's, it's been great therapy for us.
0: That's great. I love that you were able to get married there. Did you have like a massive vision for it when you bought it or was it just kind of like just start?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I think a lot of it was just my, my childhood nostalgia for like wanting to save this old place that had meant so much to me as a kid and my family in my extended family we had no vision whatsoever of this ever becoming like a business or an event venue or a gathering place we we were kind of feeling like it was going to be more of like a like an extended friends and family you know private friends and family retreat like we would maybe do like a key club with a lot of our friends anybody who wanted to be a part of it maybe family members just could, we could all kind of come and go but um after a couple of years in you know the the story of the place you know started kind of getting out through social media and through press. And people started coming out of the woodwork, you know, perfect strangers coming out of the woodwork and asking us if they could rent a room or rent a cabin or rent the whole place out for a wedding or whatever. And we just kept turning them away because we just weren't a business. We never wanted to be a business. Um, and we kind of felt like the minute we started taking money from people, it would kind of ruin the balance of, you know, the joy that we get from this place. And so we were very resistant to that at first, um, but we kept on having like these big weekend gatherings with all of our friends and big parties and things like that. And we realized like, oh my God, we can't sustain this because it's way too expensive to be putting all the work into it and then to be doing all of this entertaining. So we started kind of experimenting with like taking money on a smaller scale to do small scale events and things like that. And um, and then ultimately, as that started to take off, we... Um, Actually, it's kind of funny. Um, The county tried, we we, we continued to do Catholic mass there even after we bought the place. It was kind of a a handshake deal with Father Beginskis. As long as the will of the local community wanted to continue to have outdoor mass, we would let them. And to this day, they still do it from Memorial Day to Labor Day. But one day the county came by and they saw the church pews set up outside. We do a big outdoor mass. And they were like, well, uh, what's this? What's going on here? And we're like, Oh, it's, you know, Catholic mass. We do Catholic mass every Sunday. And they're like, you can't have mass there. You guys aren't zoned for it. This is zoned residential. Like, well, we've been doing mass here for 50 years. So you know it's (laughs) not really good to tell us that. So they, they took us by the hand and they guided us through the process to get the necessary rezoning and permits and licenses so that we could not only continue to do mass, but we can also start, you know, properly doing art camp and kids camp and creative retreats and, start using it more like an event venue for weddings and things like that. So then we did become a business and the business model for us has been every single penny that we make goes right back into the ongoing renovation and preservation. So it's not, it's not um, a money-making venture, but it's an ongoing preservation uh, venture. So it's allowed us to kind of get further and further ahead with trying to make sure we can kind of save the place and preserve the place for another generation. That's
0: great. Well, at this point, you've created an experience for your guests that is unlike any other. So talk about your process, and and maybe it just came together as you grew, but was there some intentionality behind creating an awesome experience?
2: We're pointing at each other because we both have different answers for this. I think, sorry, you and I were like, I have a side conversation when you're asking just now. Um, you know what? I mean, like like David said, I, it was really, honestly, completely organic. We always get asked, I think it's a common question, how did you dream this thing up? And honestly, we didn't. It was so organic. We didn't have a vision that would be like giving ourselves, I think, too much credit. It was every day and every year saying hey it might be fun if we did x it could be cool if we did z and at the time 15 years ago we didn't know anyone who owned a summer camp summer camps were literally just places that kids went and sometimes they would do you know specialty camps at but it wasn't a thing yet and so early on after we bought it it when it ended up on um I think the first was country living in Chicago, home and garden that quickly turned into an article with Wall Street Journal and because it was an anomaly at the time before the sort of trend had hit, not just summer camps by people owning them, but the summer camp theme that we started to see take over and like retail and clothing and you know toys and all those things and so what happened was we were just doing fun things that we liked and with no strategy and no foresight we we're just like let's try this and let's do this let's build some teepees let's build a boy scout village let's build a tree house that looks like a cabin in the sky things like that because it was fun um, and then what happens, I guess, with press is it's a virtuous cycle because press begets press. And so the word got out. And then when word gets out, more people want to come. And then that sort of developed into, wow, we actually don't have enough space anymore for, for all the people that want to come and the types of events they want to do. And so that helped us start to, for the first time ever, think about this as a proper business model and think about growth and or, or you know, growth, not an expansion perspective in that we're going to start to build 100 more cabins, that type of thing, or, you know, franchise out. But growth in that, how can we deepen the experience for the folks that come here? And for us, it's about, um, it sounds weird. Um, minimizing. It's about uh, extracting. In the very beginning, we, I think we were putting like gift baskets in rooms and I would throw everything in the kitchen sink in this little gift bag. And then I realized what people really want is a simpler story. And then we ended up running this filter of what would folks have done at a little summer vac- vacation lodge resort like this back in 1925, 1935, and then how do we learn from that, get inspired by that, and then strip away everything else here? And so we took that really pretty literally moving forward to the point where now we've got our manifesto is nothing crosses the threshold if it's newer than 1960. And having that filter is something we apply to everything. Whether you're walking in a kitchen and you open a kitchen drawer, you should only find a baked white, you know, spatula in there. Nothing new from from Target, right? Um, nothing that's going to be neon or pink or modern. And same thing with the sports equipment room or when you go down to the beach, every tennis racket and boat and piece of furniture and textile in every room has to be uh, vintage with the exception of sort of, you know, the lines that we make, whether it's new towels and bedding. So. Once we started to lean in on that, what we realized is people really respond to that because you just don't get that a lot of places. There's a lot of folks out there that will emulate history and create this faux history if they don't have one. And then maybe they do bits of it here and there, but they're not truly telling the story of a place. And so what we've tried to do is uncover, sort of unpeel the layers of the onion of the history of this place and at every opportunity and every touch point tell that story so when folks show up, Everything's a surprise. When they open that drawer in the dresser in their room, they're going to find a vintage book from the 1920s about, um, you know, a camp, summer camp or a Boy Scout camp. And I think that the more that we lean in on that, the more we're able to provide a unique experience for us that as we now are in a landscape where there's so much competition everyone opens up boutique hotels and we've got airbnbs we've got all these different sort of lodges and different folks doing them that's the thing that consistently sets us apart and the thing that we lean on the most is what's the most authentic way to tell our story and share our story so people feel like they're stepping into another era
1: yeah i think that's that's critical the whole thing about being really back to basics and no frills um, we do find that like a lot of the people who come here are, are the sorts of people who travel the world and they could stay at all the nicest hotels and go to the finest places. They're looking for something unique, something different. And here, and it sounds kind of cheesy when we say it, but like kind of getting, getting um, back to the simple pleasures of simple times. Like getting back to a place where you don't have TVs in your room and you have shared bathrooms at the end of the hall and you don't really have any modern amenities and hopefully you don't even get a phone signal. You know, so people really are kind of forced to as Teresa said, feel like they're kind of going back in time. And I think, you know, people can maybe relate to each other and relate to the environment and relate to nature a little bit more kind of organically when they feel like they're more disconnected.
0: So no Wi-Fi.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, we've got spotty Wi-Fi at best. And, you know, we kind of have a little bit of Wi-Fi just out of necessity for ourselves, like if we're here working or whatever. But we don't advertise Wi-Fi and we don't provide Wi-Fi. And we tell people, hey, if you've got work to do, um, please bring your own Wi-Fi hotspot. Or if you really have like some files you need to upload or download, um, McDonald's in, in the nearest town of Elkhorn has free Wi-Fi. <laughs> you know, you can go there. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not that, you know, it's not like we make people check their, you know, cell phones in a basket when they show up, but we definitely like, you know, it, it is back to basics. Sometimes, um, you know, people come here and they're, they don't expect it. So we try to, in the early days, at least people didn't know what to expect. So we try to kind of over index on um, setting the expectations low you know, making sure people understand that they're not going to have maid service. Um, you know, it's kind of like going to camp when you show up, like if you're in kids camp, you've got your cot and you probably got your one towel that you're issued when you show up and your one blanket or whatever. And it's just going to stay here for the duration. You know, so it's like we don't do maid service every day. We don't, you know, we don't turn rooms over while people are here. Um, they're just kind of on their own the whole time. And I think there's kind of a, a, a pleasure to that. That's kind of liberating as opposed to being at a hotel where like everything is taken care of and you feel like you're being tended to
2: and also to be honest it's, it's somewhat disarming when you show up and then discover that you don't have locks on your door and you're in this you know traditional sort of tourist lodging that they had in the 20s and 30s, predating, you know, hotels and even motor hotels where you have a long hallway. You've got shared bathrooms, men's and women's. You've got a shared lounge and then everyone's got a bedroom. And so um, it's fun for folks. And of course, we rent to groups only. And so you're with your group when you're in the top level of the hotel or the mid-level when it's a big group of rooms. But they're there isn't air conditioning, and we say, you know, if you want air conditioning, open your window. There is some heat, you know. We've got, you know, hot water but it forces you to think differently, which forces you to sort of behave differently because you have a whole different perspective. The key that we've learned is preparing people like truly like Boy Scout style. It's all about um, setting expectations. So we have this thing that we learn on really heavily very early on, which is called the manifesto of low expectations, which is exactly like it sounds before anybody can book on Airbnb or anybody comes they have this very clear outline of all the terrible things that can happen to you. Um, And it's written in a fun way, but it's in an honest way. Yes, there are going to be, you know, toads or maybe a snake, a garden snake in your shower. You're in an outdoor shower. There's going to be chipmunks running down the hallway. Nothing in here has been updated since the Hoover administration, everything that you can imagine that someone could write in a Yelp review and complain about. We just own. And we're like, Hey guys, this is what you're signing up for. And we are not, For most people, there's a nice little days in down the road or there's a holiday in, you know, those are the spots for people who have any expectations at all, because we just don't want to disappoint folks at the end of the day. And so we just try to be honest. And it's worked for us so far. Um, Having a sense of humor and a sense of humility has been a lifesaver for us because people are very forgiving, we've found.
0: That's great. Well, you mentioned you've gotten a lot of press and I think that's how we all know about you, but what have been some of your favorites that stand out as far as like photo shoots or brand collaborations or things like that?
1: I think, I mean, there's been a number of things that have just been kind of surreal to us, like being on CBS Sunday morning or being in the Wall Street Journal or being on MTV, like things like that, that it's just kind of like you're, you're like pinching yourself going, wait a minute, is this real? Like, this is so weird, so random, like. You know, the fact that like we never really sought press or advertising, we've never done advertising, you know, but I think there was something that was just kind of um, maybe compelling about the story of like this kind of little camp that could. And, you know, again, I think a lot of this also had to do with the fact that the place became an inspiration for Teresa in terms of some of you know her books, for example, her three books are all one way or another related to camp. So, you know, the more she started getting press and doing articles and the article became a book and then the book led to another book. So it's become this kind of virtuous cycle of creativity. And, you know, it's funny too. We also talk about the fact that um, we bought the camp in 2004, which is the same year that Facebook started. And obviously, you know, they're a lot more successful than we are. But I I make that um, point just in terms of the, the role of social media. You know, we had a lot of friends who were coming up who were involved in advertising, marketing, social media, people who were kind of early versions of influencers. And we didn't think of it that way. It was just what people were doing at the time. You were coming up and you were taking pictures and you were kind of microblogging about it. So, you know, things that maybe would have just happened under the cover of darkness and the word never would have got out um, because of the early days of social media. It was able to kind of amplify our story in a way that just a couple of years before it never would have been possible.
2: I think to answer your question as well about what our favorite brand collaborations were, um, it's it's fun in this day and age because everyone will call a collaboration and a partnership. It could be anything. It could be like we're going to make a singular product and do a limited edition of five and then they'll call it a partnership. But early on, we weren't pursuing that Um but we got a phone call from Gantt, which is a—it's um, this international amazing clothing company that started as a men's clothing company, and they're based in Sweden now. But they're all over the world, and they make really beautiful high-end men's clothing, but now, of course, whole kids' lines feel like a Ralph Lauren and women's and children's. And so we did a partnership with them, and they did um, a, a collection, a Camp Wendorbega collection, and they were probably – Maybe twenty-five pieces in it, and it was for kids. But they did backpacks and handkerchiefs and shirts and pants and shorts and jackets and jumpsuits and all these great fun things. And we um, influenced design by giving them all of our um, identity system and style guide. But then they really took the ball and, and ran with it, and they did some of the most beautiful products that we've seen. And then right before it launched, they they ceased um, selling the children's line in the U.S. And so David and I had to fly to London for the launch. And it was this incredible flagship, and it was this beautiful floor. And walking into that room and seeing all of the products in one place with the Camp Anduiga name on it kind of blew our minds because we just never planned for that. And it was fun, and it was a singular season. That was really fun, I think, that stands out. Um, And then another one that we really are still, it's still close to our hearts. Crate and Barrel had a line called, um, or a brand, a sub-brand actually called uh, Land of Nod. And it was a kid's, kids started out as bedding, but then it went into kids' toys and home furnishing and goods and and everything. And we did a huge line with them a few years ago, about 45 pieces. And it, it crossed every category from play structures. So they came out and and they really just documented all of camp. So they ended up making miniature kids versions of our teepees, our tents, sleeping bags, everything down at ornaments. Oh my Lord, the tree house. So it was intended to be a limited edition for a season. And they did like dress up outfits, everything. They even made a stuffed version of our dog, Frankie. It was incredible. <laughs> and, uh, and Betty it was nuts. It just goes on and on. And it was mind blowing, but what happened was it, it did so well that the next year and the next year, um, instead of it only being seasonal, they actually kept selling and people kept buying it. So there was a, a stuffed canoe that they still sell. And it's like a, it looks like a big dog bed, but it's a kid's bed. And it's just something that doesn't go out of style because I think that they hit something. They hit a nerve with, I think, the theme of camp in general, and it transcends Camp Ondoje, but it's about being timely and timeless. The designs that they were creating to the time weren't based on a um a trend and a color palette that was gonna be millennial pink that was gonna go out of style the next year. What they were creating was something that had enough history and provenance that they were staying authentic to what the camp was, putting a kid's spin on it. And so, you know, we're doing this call with you now up in our bunk room, which is imagine like uh three bears, it's just rows of bunks. And I'm I'm looking at the the pillows and the blankets in here. They all say Camp Underweg in nineteen twenty five and they're from the Landed nod line. So here it is, years later, and we still, by some grace of God, get these you know residual checks because they're still selling the um, the treehouse, which is a miniature version of our treehouse, which is a dollhouse, is epic, and um, several other things. And so none of us really expected it to stick, I guess, and we're grateful that it has. That one stands out, and of course, we've done a. A bunch of sense, David. You know, I'm sure that you love the Ural motorcycle. That was a fun one too. And complete polar opposite of the kids' lines. Um, but it just goes on and on. And I, I think that those are some of our favorites because we still every once in a while see folks that will post a photo of their kids with um either wearing the raccoon shirt from Gantline or, you know, with the treehouse or some toy from the land of Nodline. So that's been really fun for us.
0: That's great. I feel like you guys have your hands in a lot of different things and I love that. So Teresa, as David mentioned, you have had the opportunity to write and publish some books. Tell us a little bit more about those.
2: Well, the first one felt a very modest cottage and, um, it was about moving this tiny little 1920s motor cabin court. The building is like, a almost like a modern day. She shed, you'd say, but it, it was a little log cabin from my hometown up here to camp and, uh, it was in my hometown and I always just liked it when I was a kid, it was sitting you know, next to my grandma's house and it always seemed sad because it was abandoned even back then. So I just started talking to my little brother. I said, can we just move that up to camp and, and fix it? And he's like, well, yeah, we can do anything. So he did with, I was in Prague on a, on a film shoot. And in, in the middle of night, three, three o'clock in the morning there, um, I got a phone call from, the editor-in-chief of Country Living magazine, she said, I hope you don't mind. Uh, my name is Nancy Sarriano. I hope you don't mind. But I made a phone call and I met with the head of Hearst Publishing, who was the publisher of Country Living at the time. And and we would like to take your story about this little cabin that could that you moved 350 miles in a flatbed truck and fixed up and and turn it into a book and I was like I'm so confused I'm like oh that's amazing it's really only 10 by 10 square feet so that's the whole story <laughs> there's a story in that for you and I said, like, I'm not a writer so who's gonna write this she's like well you are and then I just went into full panic mode because I, I did not I could not fathom that someone would want to write a story about a project so small it was big to us but you know, in our minds at the time, people only wrote books or got publishers calling them for big things, right? And so um that was a turning point because I think at that moment I realized if you're emotionally attached to something and you're really passionate about something. And you just put everything into it and you tell that story and you share that story. What you're doing is and you're inspiring other people who maybe have never considered doing that um, to do it themselves. And, I, you know, we did that, Lord, David, what was it, about almost 13 years ago, wasn't it? Probably. Probably. And this is before this wave of tiny homes happened. Um, And so we just wanted to save it. And. End it was a fun little project, but I think serendipitously we were just hitting the right sort of project at the right time. So that book came out and um it was really fun. It was an amazing journey and it was just almost like a little diary of this little this little project. And um that ended up um as soon as it got published You know, there was another book that um, was called Found Free and Flea, and that was the story about resurrecting Camp Onduega one room at a time by way of every yard sale, barn sale, thrift store, you know, garage sale um, in in the county and beyond. And then um, all of the different collections that we found here and the story of resurrecting different components in different spots and different things that we learned. So it was a little bit of a DIY meets thrift store meets flea market. And then um, that one was Clarkson Potter, which is a division of, of Random House. And then that one just hit, and then Anthropology picked that one up, and then it went to its second printing, and it was so much fun and so much work at the same time, but we loved it. And all what was really happening is that we were just documenting the before and afters of everything we were doing. I wasn't really writing the book as we were in the process of resurrecting camp. I was just documenting it. And then to find out that someone wants to turn it into a book, was really rewarding because it sort of validated something that was just, you know, done on the cheap. We didn't have any money to do these things. We were just doing the best we could with what we had. And so it, it's, it was, it still is inspiring to think that there's an audience out there that maybe don't have the means to go out and build some, you know, big lodge, modern cabin and they do what they can with what they have. And it ends up being um, even more rewarding because you're really invested in that in a different way. Um, and that inspired me to, to do the third book, which, um, it just came out and that when I actually partnered with my writing partner at, um, at our agency, Ogilvy, um, Donna, she'd been my writing partner for so many years and she has a beautiful voice. She's a proper writer. I, I like to say I can write, you know, emails and it's very colloquial, very yeah. conversational, barely. I can't, I mean, if you read my emails or my blog posts, you'll see that I get every third word spelled wrong. Donna's is a really beautiful writer, so I asked her I had the story idea, but i didn 't have the voice for what I envisioned and so she and I wrote this one together and it 's called the forever tree and it 's about the tree house um, that sits in the very center of camp that um, was built in this you know this epic we called it the grandfather tree. It was the biggest tree in the property, and um, it died quite suddenly. Um, which was devastating because we 're real tree huggers here, and uh, it was so beautiful, and it had been here for over a century, and it got Dutch elm disease and died and so um, not long after actually, my father had died, so I had a strange sentimental attachment to this tree because he had christened this property when we bought it by hanging the tree swing in that tree, and so I could not bring myself to cut the tree swing down because he hung it it, it was just like this you know attachment that i couldn 't get past so um my brother came out who's an arborist or a and he um and he said, You know, you're gonna have to cut this tree down. It's dead, it's dangerous. You have too many kids here, and it was gigantic. It was gonna start dropping limbs. And so I knew he was right. But what he ended up doing is is limbing it. I don't know what the word is. you know, David, when you topped just it topped it off? He got all of the all of the high big canopy off, so it wasn't a danger anymore. And then it was this weird half tree truncate trunk in the middle of the property that I couldn't I couldn't cut it down because what Sam had done, my brother, is he left Dad's tree swing up. He left that limb up that was hanging dad's swing. And so at this point it had been a few years, but I was still too attached to it. So then we started doing all these different philanthropic free camps just for the community and our extended friends. One of them was Art Camp. And Art Camp is just a collection of artists and makers and builders and amazing humans, generous, creative humans. And we always do a creative project every year. And so they said, we want to build a treehouse this year. You have got 25 acres of trees. Let's pick one. So the artist and the builders are touring the property and trying to pick a tree. And, of course, we have so many. And they picked all the big ones, the sturdy ones, the gigantic ones, the healthy ones. And I just I, – I said, this is going to sound crazy, but can I just show you this one? And and then I told them the story of dad's tree. And they said, that's it. This is the tree. We don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to build this tree house in a dead tree at half of a dead tree. And so they did. And what happened was like beyond anything we could have imagined. They came out and spent a year and a half in groups of volunteers on their weekends, building this epic tree house, which looks like a house in a tree, um, but it's actually built structurally in these telephone poles that are in the ground and, you know, rebar and concrete. So the weight isn't on the trunk of the tree, but they built this as a memorial for my dad, but it ended up being this really beautiful story about seeing things Seeing the beauty in things that look like they're too far gone and seeing the promise and the hope of something else rather than seeing something dead or something that feels like it's outlived its use. Um, and that turned into uh, The Forever Tree, which is the children's book, which we just found out last week has been picked up by Scholastics, and that's going to be in every school, and we're excited about that. We just found out a few months ago that it's getting published in France, so we never could have imagined that these tiny little projects could I don't know live on beyond what they are here physically at camp
0: wow well congratulations that's amazing David you serve on the board of the Frank Lloyd Wright Trust how has your experience with restoring Camp Wandawega sort of influenced your role there
1: yeah I think Um, I've always been in like, like Teresa, both of us have always been into saving old things, you know, whether it's buildings or motorcycles or cars or houses or whatever, like we always were into vintage and thrift and like finding things that just needed, you know, to be saved. And I think Teresa and I are both kind of maybe um, frustrated architects. I think neither of us was ever very good at math. So I think, you know, when I was younger, I thought about being an architect, But I found out that um, I would have to take too much math, so I became a graphic designer (laughs) instead. So I think my love of saving old things and my love of architecture um, led me to, you know, doing a lot of, you know, renovation and preservation stuff in general, you know, on my own in in Chicago with, you know, a partner of mine buying two flats and three flats and fixing them up, things along those lines. And then um, ultimately my love of, you know, preservation, um, you know, kind of, through twists and turns, obviously brought me to Camp Wandawega. This has been like an amazing, (laughs) never-ending preservation project. But then I also um, was able, and I'm honored to be on the board of the Frank Lloyd Wright Trust, too, where I think, you know, for me, it's like how how can I help them through the things that I'm good at, whether it's marketing or creativity, things along those lines, to come up with ideas about how we can kind of breathe new life into what's already an amazing organization of the Frank Lloyd Wright Trust, but, you know, trying to find ways to make the organization more relevant to a new generation or younger generation of um, architecture um, aficionados.
0: That's great. Well, guys, what's next for you and for Camp Yeah,
1: There's always something brewing. I think um, we, uh, Trish and I spent the last couple of years kind of thinking about, like, do we want to, you know, you know, fix up some things that need more fixing up, or do we want to buy some more adjacent uh, property or nearby property? And I think what we ended up doing is working with um, the good folks at the local township and the county here, and we consolidated all of our acres into a single parcel because they used to be multiple parcels, and we worked with them to get permission to be able to add a couple of um, rustic um, campsites and camping units in the woods we had a lot of kind of back acres, which you know people would walk through once in a while, and there's kind of hiking trails, but they were they were basically underutilized. So now we are going through the process of kind of sketching and designing kind of these cute little you know rustic like A-frame style cabins um, that'll have no running water, no electricity. It'll just be these really little primitive cabins that are in the in the back of the woods, so that we can kind of give people more places to kind of escape to and to kind of. Even like even when you're here at camp when you're down here kind of in the thick of things you know down by the campfire or down by the beach or down by the sports courts and things like that, I think it's going to be nice for people for some people who can kind of go up and sleep in a little rustic um, camping cluster in the middle of the woods. So we're just trying to figure out how to make that happen now. We've got the, we've got the um, you know all the things sorted out in the township and the county and the state and now we're just kind of going through some you know things with um, the architectural drawings and the permits and things like that.
0: That's exciting. Well, how do we follow along and keep up with everything you guys have going on?
2: Um, Instagram. I'm sure that you hear that a lot. It's funny in yeah. the beginning we did, you know, Twitter and Pinterest and the blog and updated the website a lot and Facebook obviously. But you know what? It's really at the end of the day, it's just Instagram. That's where our audience is and that's that's really how we sort of share what we're doing day to day. Although In the off season, we get down to, I probably post once a week. And what we do in in high season is that I spend a lot of time just sharing out the stories of other folks that come here and their events and their getaways because I think that's been the... the amazing discovery here is that we don't need to make content, people that come here make the content and we just share it. And that's why on our Instagram, it says that um, we're a little getaway in Wisconsin, and it's, um, the feed is created
1: by those who we share this place
2: with.
0: That's great. And if people want to come stay, where do they go for that information?
1: I mean, the best place is just to go to wonderwega.com and you can get kind of over, overall information. It's it's primarily primarily set up for like larger groups doing like creative retreats and things along those lines. But when we have um, unused inventory, we also allow small groups like a group of friends or family to kind of c- come and do like their own little um, self-planned, self-guided camp getaway. And so they can do that via Airbnb.
0: Perfect. And they can help support all your efforts. So,
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Well, guys, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been a great conversation. I love what you're doing, have followed you for years. So, uh, thanks again for being on here. Thanks for having us. It's been fun.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you.
0: Well, I love that David and Teresa followed their passion. And while they didn't even have plans of operating the camp as a business, their passion was contagious and it overflowed into all of these amazing opportunities. And I love how their creativity just keeps fueling more creativity from the camp itself to their books and their brand collaborations. It's pretty amazing to watch. So if you're in need of a little creative inspiration, go check out their Instagram, and you can find the links to everything we talked about in the show notes. Also, we just launched the Live Rural Survey, and we're asking everyone to take a minute to complete this. No matter where you live, rural, urban, or somewhere in between, your input matters and will help us gather important insights. Go to ruralrevival.co slash survey and I promise it will only take a minute. Also, could you please share the Live Rule Survey link on your social pages to help us get this in front of as many people as possible? Thank you so much, and thanks for tuning in today. And a huge thanks to David and Teresa for being on the podcast. Have a great day, everybody.